0: So we want to, therefore, pick up where we've left off in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and chapter 6, walking through this book together as as a group of people. We'll wrap up our time together in the book of Ecclesiastes in Easter. Now, this is important because of a few different reasons. I'll try to to give you a sense of direction about why we're here and what we're doing. Ecclesiastes is an invitation into sorrow. Um, I'm going to be Debbie Downer for the next little bit that I have the Bible open to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I want to encourage you with this. As I invite you into this sorrow, I want you to know why. It's not because I hate you. It's not because I want to harm you. But I want to invite you into a temporary kind of despair such that it becomes kind of the birthplace and and I would hope a fertile soil for a, a lasting joy. That is, I want to invite you to despair of things that you might currently be putting your hope in. By, uh, I want to invite you into maybe despair of the things that you're currently putting your identity into under the sun that is apart from God. If right now you are finding your identity in anything other than who God is and what He has done for you, I want to rip that as politely and kindly and lovingly as I can out of your fingers I want to pry your grip loose from that thing and it's not because I hate you so if you're not a Christian maybe if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a believer I'm really glad but I want you to know right up front where where I want to go with you I want want to grant you a greater and lasting joy in the character of nature and nature of God and what he's done for you in Jesus Christ by means of kind of harming you a little bit so I noticed that many of you are extremely, like you seem to be upbeat today, you seem to be feeling really happy and positive today, so let's fix that right now. <laughs> let's open, we're going to begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to read the entirety of chapter 6 together, but we're going to try to pick up toward the end of chapter 5 that is connected thematically with chapter 6. So let's begin in Verse 8 of chapter 5. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. For he who loves money Let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. In all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his tool, this, this toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life. Because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his life, or the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? For the last several weeks, we have contemplated the truth, the wisdom of Solomon, who leaves with us this reflection over his own life, and he comes to the conclusion over and over and over again, and probably in the most somber and probably in the darkest terms of yet in the book of Ecclesiastes, we find in chapter 6 the same thing, that life under the sun is meaningless. That is, that life apart from God, life apart from the supernatural ability of God to bless and provide, life away from God, where where we can only do what we can and we are in control of what limited things we have power over, life apart from God's control, apart from God's sovereignty, is ultimately meaningless. That word vanity shows up over and over again and over again such that we find that if we try to find meaning apart from God, if we try to find a sense of substantive identity apart from God, if we try to find enjoyment, if we try to find satisfaction apart from God, then the end result is always a somber and depressed meaninglessness. I shared this with you before, but uh, the writer of Moby Dick Herman Melville says that Ecclesiastes is the most honest book ever written. Because it's one of the only times in which we really see a man who got everything he wanted but was honest about what happened under the surface. A man that if if, if he were alive today, Solomon would, would probably overwhelm social media with bragging about all of the things that he's accomplished. As if to, we've seen for the chapters up to this point is like okay so so you work really hard you do lots of cool stuff oh that's neat your Pinterest page shows your creativity that's cute uh, I once I once planted a garden and it turned into a national park uh, oh oh so you're doing some DIY stuff in your house you went to Home Depot and, and took a picture of that that's cute I once built a building and they called it the holiest of holies because God showed up in it right. Like, so you're like, oh, that's cute. You, you, you bought your girlfriend a, a diamond ring. That's adorable. I built palaces for my 700 wives. You get it? Like, oh you oh you're saving up to for a down payment on a house. Yeah, I had a house. It was like, I don't know, somewhere about forty to sixty thousand square feet. And that's not even counting some of the outer areas of my house. You get this, you can you can go now, even even in this you can go to the holy land, and outside of the city of Jerusalem, there's what remains are called Solomon's pools. You can Google this later, and these vast pools still exist. They were simply meant to store water to water his gardens. This, this guy did it all. As if to say like, oh, you, you think you're special. That's, that's cute. That's nice of you. Anything that you can do, I've done better. And at the end of my pursuits, I found vanity. I found a sense of meaninglessness in all of them. And we find ourselves in the thick of wisdom literature. That is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. These are, these are five different books of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. We find Job is a reflection about the wisdom that, we can be, that can be found in the world when a man loses everything. But there's a strange little tone to Ecclesiastes. That sounded depressing, right? Did you hear this? what I just read? Didn't that sound awful? Like, oh my goodness, who knows What is really good for man while he lives the few days of his meaningless, vain, empty life? and it passes like a shadow. That sounds like a person who has been overwhelmed by failure, doesn't it? That sounds like a person who's lost everything that was valuable to him. You can go to Job chapter 3 and reflect in the same way as Job does, and he goes for an entire chapter about how he wishes he had never been born. He wished that God would curse the day that that he had been born on so that no one would ever be born on that day ever again, so that no one would ever remember this awful day that he was born because he lost everything. And as we read this, you would think, certainly, this man has lost everything meaningful to him. But we find out that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not the wisdom that's gained from losing everything. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is from a man who I would argue was probably the first American, and he is sorrowful because he got every single thing he wished for. Every single thing he wanted to accomplish, he set out and did it. And he has some wisdom for us. As I shared with you, starting in chapter 4, the last 10 chapters, roughly 6 to 10 chapters, start to sound like the book of Proverbs, and they become disjointed. But what we have here is a theme of wealth and money. We have here a a very prevalent theme, and I want to, as we've been doing it, even though some of these themes are kind of piled back to back and don't seem related, we want to open them up, begin to decipher what wisdom there is for us, what wisdom and foolishness is visible for us, and then we look ultimately to the finished work of Christ. So this is what I want to contend, that those who have much yet do not know Christ will never stop craving and never find rest those that even like Solomon, who get everything that they want, everything that their heart has desired, if they do not find the gift of God's company, His communion and love and care, His grace in Jesus Christ, then they will still be restless. Maybe even the most restless of all people. And what we find here are two separate things in the quest for wealth and the quest for money, we're invited to consider the wisdom and the foolishness that goes along with it. So this wisdom literature is different. This is not necessarily like like most of the Bible where God is revealing himself and speaking from beyond beyond the sun to us. But instead, this is like a reflection from beneath the sun about what can be learned about who God is and has revealed himself to be. So, we have this kind of from the ground up. The nature and the the language used here is almost the language of like a journal. He he's it's like the language of searching. So you'll see elsewhere he's like and and I told myself or I declared it to be and so and he he says I've seen this. I've sought this out. If you notice this and and he begins to just kind of give us this sense, behold, what I have seen, what I have learned, what I have gleaned, and he, and he gives us this sense of wisdom. But there's, there's something about wisdom literature in the Bible that I want you to recognize, that wisdom is always, at least from a human perspective, set up as a foil. That is, it's a literary, uh, a literary foil would be like a, a kind of like a, a, an anti, uh, however the, the protagonist would be, this is the antagonist. And so in a, in a good story, you begin to understand the hero because you understand the villain. You begin to understand more about like, the goodness or, the, or whatever the movement of the plot may be by understanding the tension or the thing that's working against it. And so a good story teaches us about how great the hero is by first demonstrating how awful the enemy is. And the foil here to godly wisdom is worldly foolishness. Now, you're probably more familiar with that than you realize. Let me give you a few examples of the kind of wisdom that we might share, but if you read a little bit beneath the surface, you'll recognize there's some foolishness right beneath the surface that that it sprouted from. Okay, So, for example, if I told you something like, all right, this is wisdom, you're going to want to write this down, someone's going to want to tweet this, okay, never, never, ever rest anything on your car at any given moment. Like if your hands are full and you got to open the car, and you think I'll just put my cup of coffee on the car, or I'll put my phone on the car. Never, ever rest anything ever on your car. Don't do it. Please don't do it. Don't rest your phone. Don't rest like your bag. Don't please don't rest your your like your your child seat. Like don't don't put anything on the car. And those of you who are sitting there right now and you think you know better than me and you're like, because you've gotten away with it so far, and you're like, why? Why, why, why would I not do that? You, the rest of you who, who know this wisdom know the folly that's, that's underneath it, don't you? Right? Like, I mean, maybe you're getting away with it now, but a time is coming, your coffee's going to fall off. A time is coming, unless, I mean, if you do that, fine, activate that Find My Phone app or whatever, activate the GPS, because you're going to want to find out where your phone slung off your car in traffic, okay? And hope that maybe it went away from traffic enough it didn't break. And so then he begin to realize the wisdom that I'm sharing with you, it got real, didn't it? It's like, oh, how, how do you know that? How are you so wise in this area? And the reason I'm wise in this area is because I've been a fool. Some more wisdom, right? If you're ever carrying more than one thing, here's the wisdom. The most expensive thing will fall first. <laughs> Every single, like if you, if you grab like, I don't know, just like some fruit and maybe a backpack and then you think, well, I'll just, I'll just grab my cell phone. Um, and hold it as well. You will never drop the fruit. You will never drop the bag. You will always drop the most expensive thing first. happens every single time. And so you begin to see this wisdom. um, Just trust me on this. Secure the most expensive thing. Put it in your pocket. Put it in a bag. Do not try to carry it all at once. It will fall first, right? And don't try to catch it with your foot because you'll punt it into the wall and make things worse. (laughs) Just this is wisdom. Tweet that. Trust me. This is wisdom. You're going to want to remember this. But if you look a little bit beneath the surface, you realize this wisdom is born of relative stupidity, right? A relative amount of pride. I can handle that, no problem. Oh, no, I can't. Another little bit of wisdom, never let children drink or eat around electronics. Just don't do it. I would Don't even drink coffee or anything around your laptop or your computer. Just don't do it. You've gotten away with it this, this long, but don't do it. Another little bit of wisdom whenever you, or like whenever your spouse or significant other or somebody you at least care a little bit about asks you, How do I look in this? think before you speak. <laughs> think carefully about what you say. What you say is important. And if someone says, Do I look fat in this? or How does this, like, does, How do I look in this? think very carefully. Think slowly. Go, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know what you're... Okay, now I know what's... There's wisdom here! Write this down! But you recognize that that wisdom is born of great foolishness, don't you? Because sometimes that wisdom that we experience is actually the result of a foil. A foil of foolishness. And sometimes the greatest truths, I would argue as we flip even over to the New Testament, the greatest and deepest and most profound truths are born of the greatest and most painful and decimating falsehoods. And we're invited to do the same here, to consider that even though you might find value in certain things, they may serve as a foil, a foil of your own foolishness, a backdrop, if you will, a canvas in which we believe God wants to show us where real truth, real value, real identity can be found such that even this person who got every single thing that he ever wanted reflects in these two chapters about how the wealth and the money that he strived for ended up being the thing that causes the greatest sense of woe. Because I think what we find is that even if you have much, if we come from God and we go to God and we are not living alongside and in communion with God, then it will be the source of stress. It will be the source of hurt. And not the source of joy so he begins with and kind of paints a picture I think of two at least two maybe maybe more but at least two different things about life under the sun the first we I think we as like the conclusion here is that death and hunger are the great equalizers death and hunger are the great equalizers So he begins, we saw this a a little bit last week, in chapter 5, and he says that if you love money, you still won't be satisfied with money. And even the person who loves wealth will never actually be satisfied with gaining that wealth. Now this is interesting because remember last week we saw, these are reflections from a guy atop of the Ponzi scheme. I could stand here and tell you that being wealthy is not all it's cracked up to be. You wouldn't listen to me. You wouldn't think I had any validity to my words. Why? Because I'm not in that tax bracket. I have no experience. But we find here the most, most wealthy, the most amazing, most influential, as we talked about, uh, one commentarian looked at it this way, that if you took Hugh Hefner, um, if you took the smartest man uh, alive, someone, I mean, I just pick, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, and if you took, like, the Pope, rolled them all into one guy and made him king over like emperor and, you know, the most influential, most popular person, that's, that's Solomon. And he's sitting on top of the Ponzi scheme looking down and saying, even from here there's no joy. And he says that there is a, a sense in which the desire for wealth, the hunger for wealth, never is satisfied. And in the end, the people who strive for wealth and get it and the people who strive for wealth and don't both end up dust. They both end up buried 6 feet under. And death and hunger are the two unquenchable unsatisfiable equalizers in life under the sun. So just look at some of the wisdom that he gives that some of it ser- serves as a file or excuse me as a foil for for the wisdom in verse 11 it says when goods increase they increase who eat them and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes. So, like, there's, I mean, with all due careful respect, don't Google this too much, but there's a sense in which, like, mo money, mo problems is biblical. Like, there's a sense in which, like, even from the top of the Ponzi scheme, th- there's, there's a stress to be had. Now, obviously, there's, there's gain and loss to being wealthy or to be in poverty. He talks about what's wise with spending and investing. But in the end, it seems that there's something that happens that equalizes the playing field. It it levels it for the rich and for the poor. And he even says something that hits me right in my own soul. He says in verse 12, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So this is important for, for many of you. I know there are a lot of you that um, you're like entrepreneurial types. You have an entrepreneurial drive. You have the, the willingness to take risk. You have the desire to be the boss. You have that gift in you. And some of you are gifted as servants. Like you, you are diligent, you are steadfast, and you are disciplined. But you don't really have a hunger to be the boss. And you want to you wanna serve and, and be diligent in your service. And, and what we come to find out here is that evidently, there's a, a type of, of gain and loss that happens either way. So if you're just an employee, it's pretty cool. Does he catch that? You you get to go to sleep. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer. Sweet is the sleep of the person who's not the boss. And there's this catch-22. If you're not the boss, you'll be hungry for influence. You'll be hungry to be in charge. But at the same time, when 5 o'clock comes or whenever that is for you, you get to clock out, go home, and leave it there. And then you get to go to sleep. And so if you find yourself thinking, well, I just, I just don't want to have this stress. I just want to clock in. I just want a 9 to 5 where I can do my thing and go home, enjoy my weekend, and not think about it anymore. That's great, but you'll have no influence. And evidently, you'll have no power. There'll be no promotion for you. I know a lot of people that, even some in this room, that like you've passed up promotions for this. Like You've been offered the opportunity to be a supervisor or a boss, and you pass it up, and you're like, because I don't want that headache. I I don't want that. I want to be able to, at the end of the day, clock out, go home. And so here's what you get. You get sleep. You get rest. You don't have to be on call. You get to rest. But it turns out that your stomach is kind of not full. You'll never have the power or influence that the person in charge has. But if you're tempted to think that being in charge, that climbing the ladder is what will give you meaning, you're wrong. He says again, on the other side is that even though the stomach is full for the rich person, that person can't sleep. Some of you know this, right? So it's like, oh, you want to be a doctor? That's cool. Uh, well, here's, what, here's the cost. You never get to sleep again, right? Ever. I, don't, I have a personal problem with this. I want the guy who, who picks up a knife and starts cutting on me to have at least had tw- a few hours of sleep in the last 48 hours. Um, but this is the cost of being in charge, isn't it? There's a sense in which once you kind of go into that higher echelon of influence, great, you'll enjoy it, but bye-bye sleep. Because you can't turn it off. And the higher you are up in the level of influence, the lower you find yourself being able to rest. The more in charge you are, the more on call you are. And at a certain point, when the stuff breaks, there's a certain point where you can't just clock out parents know this well right there's like a sense in which at some point like you you can't just I mean someone threw up in their bed right oh that's awesome and there you can't hit the snooze button on that like you can't you can't just pass that on there's there's something about it's like okay great that you have the joy of these children the joy of this responsibility but oh guess what bye-bye sleep this is real Whereas some of, maybe the rest of you, you you are children right now. You are someone's child. You are the son or daughter of some parent, but maybe you aren't a parent yourself. And boy, you sleep like a baby. You do. Is there one that gives us more meaning than the other? No. There is, in this life, apart from God, under the sun, just a sense in which the best we can come up with is measuring the folly, the foolishness, and the wisdom, and then choosing which one is best. So much so that he goes on in verse 13, he says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches are kept by their ownership to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. So this is another thing that ought to like, land pretty clearly and hit home for all of us. Like In a broken and fallen world, accidents happen. Misfortune happens. You can try as much as you want, and sometimes there's just mistakes, aren't there? Sometimes costly ones. Sometimes very costly ones. I can think of a dollar amount of certain mistakes. I can, I can think of like, oh, how much is this mistake going to cost me? The noise that you make your car start to make when you hit something you shouldn't have. I just hear the dollars, I'm like, oh, my goodness. What's it going to cost to fix this? And there's other kinds of costliness when things go into, whether it's a bad venture because of a mistake you've made or as a mistake someone else made. In this broken, fallen world, there is always going to be a sense in which the best we can hope for is to go back into the meaninglessness with some sense of wisdom. Just like we were naked and had nothing and were powerless when we came into this world, you will leave powerless you will leave having lost your dignity if you're lucky to live long enough to do so. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is then apparently to just eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is... His law, that is His opportunity. So what does that mean? Does that mean we just mail it in? Does that mean we just kind of quit and we do nothing? No, evidently, what we do have, even though it's a mixture of wisdom and foolishness, is a gift that God has given us. In the end, it's still going to be a canvas with which God is going to work and do something beautiful, miraculous, and supernatural. That being said, we just simply, all we can do is measure out the pros and cons, weigh them, weigh the wisdom and the foolishness of our decisions, weigh the, the pros and cons of being the boss, entrepreneur, guy in charge type, or, or, or weigh the pros and cons of being the, the faithful and the, and the disciplined worker type. You weigh the pros and cons, and then you accept your lot. Because everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil, sees that this is ultimately, according to verse 19, an actual gift from God. It's a gift. Now, he says something that, that kind of contradicts itself, and I want to kind of put them together. So he says that God gives these things for them to enjoy, and then I want you to hear the thought it was dark. It gets worse. I want you to hear the, like, the sobering revelation of a person who's, been, who's accomplished everything. He says, on one hand... God gives a person these things to enjoy. It's his gift. But then in verse 2 of chapter 6, it says that God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing. But yet, God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but instead a stranger does. And there's this strange, dark contradiction we live in, isn't there? Like you could spend your entire life amassing wealth, accomplishments, amassing dollars. You could spend your entire life doing that. You could spend your entire life chasing this. You could do that. And it's quite possible you might achieve it and then never get to enjoy any of it. I mean, isn't that the irony? Like by the time you can save up and, I don't know, afford afford the, the chalet in the Swiss Alps, you're like too old to ski. I mean, this, I could be wrong, skiing and snowboarding, kind of a young, kind of young person sport, right? And so by the time you could afford to go skiing every day, you're too old to enjoy it. By the time you could afford a big, massive wakeboard boat, you're probably your knees aren't good enough to do that anymore. And there's this irony, isn't there? By the time that you could finally afford to get that thing to pick up that spouse that you wanted, well, you're kind of already past your prime. This is the nature of things. And there's this strange tension that you and I live in that you can pursue that, you can go after that, maybe you can break the mold, maybe you can beat the odds, and you can be the person who achieves that before they turn 21. Good luck. Absolutely. Have at it. That's one in a trillion, I would guess. Or you could spend your entire life trying to accomplish it, and maybe you get there, and ultimately a stranger, according to verse 7 enjoys it instead and this according to the end excuse me verse two is vanity it's even evil i'm going to stop there for just a moment and and just kind of let this sit before we go to the next even possibly darker thought um can you resonate with this have you ever felt this way have you ever just thrown up your hands and thought what's the point at the very least, I want to encourage you with something about the character and nature of God that I see here. Uh, when I was a teenager, I began to read the Bible as just a frustrated person. Uh, I just had pastors like, read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible, and I was like, oh yeah, fine, I will, and I'll prove you wrong, and I was like, it actually won't solve all my problems, and so I had a really bad motive, um, but I was just really spiteful, really angry, really, cynic- re- really kind of cynical. This is where most of my angry sarcasm comes from. I'm working through it, okay, um, and I remember the first time I read through this book. And I remember it was in this chapter. in the next few verses, I remember reading it. And I, I, I remember, like, kind of seriously, like, reading it and, like, looking over my shoulder, like, am I, am I supposed to be reading this? Because up to that point, I, maybe it was because of my own angst against authority, or maybe I really just hadn't had anyone teach me this. But I didn't know that there was language for this kind of sorrow. I thought the point of the Bible was you open it and you read it and then it just makes you happy again. And so what I I was scared of the Bible because I didn't think that my sorrow, I didn't think that my depression was okay. I thought it was disobedience. I thought that my sense of frustration was ungodliness. I thought there was something wrong with me. And if you've ever been there, at least at the very least, was that not encouraging to at least have opened the Bible and thought, that's exactly how I felt. Can you look past those words and see the kind character and the father heart of God that he allows a man like Solomon to speak words that are sympathy for you and me? Can you look past, I mean, I mean, look at the cost. This guy went through sorrow so that centuries later you and I might open it up and see the kind father heart of God so that we would see, oh, God is not far off. God is not somehow unaware of this kind of depression. Instead, he gives us language for it. Because he hits a nerve right after this, maybe the darkest part of the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes. It says it's a grievous evil. Verse 3, even if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but yet his soul is not satisfied, get that sense of contentment with life's good things, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it, now, now we know the difference between it and he, says here, parse out the words, it, that is the stillborn child, has not even seen the sun or known anything, and yet it finds rest rather than he. Did you catch that? The stillborn child has a greater rest than the rich and successful person. And we have a powerful, I would argue, maybe just, just a strange Thing that's laid next to one another wealth and work versus contentment and satisfaction there's a strange thing here evidently you might not be able to have both riches and rest it may be that you cannot have riches and rest and he uses a painful analogy doesn't, doesn't he? When you start talking about miscarriage in stillborn children, this, this hits home pretty hard in my family. Now, here's what I've learned. The statistics of, this, uh, statistics of this, depending on what country we're talking about, roughly between 20 and 30 pregnancies miscarry in the first trimester. So here's what this means. This means that we're, we're in a prime position to care and love people who go through this. Um, but, but what I can tell you is this hits home for, for my family. Um, there's there's quite a few people in my family who were born after some doctor said you're never going to have kids, and there are a few um, baby land and baby dodgings in that that's the marking for their grave, scattered around because they didn't make it. So this hits home. Now that said, I I don't think I could ever say what Solomon says. I don't think I could ever bring myself to making that kind of analogy because this hits really deeply for me and it may hit deeply for you but I want you to consider by means of hyperbole what it is that he's trying to illustrate you might get everything you want by means of work effort success you name it and achieve it all and it still might be better that you'd never been born because in the end if you don't have contentment if you don't have that sense of rest then what's the point it might be that you have to choose between riches and rest. And we see this in the New Testament, right? The rich young ruler, the guy we would all want to be friends with, he comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And what does Jesus say? Okay, fine, sell everything. Give it to the poor, then come follow me. And what do we find out? He doesn't find rest in Christ. Why? Because of his riches. Jesus later says, like, what ultimately does it profit a person? What profit is there if you gained the entirety of the world? I mean, this, that's, a, that's a broad statement, right? That's like, that's pinky in the brain kind of stuff there, right? What are you going to do today? We're going to take over the world. What if you did? What if you did take over, like literally took over the whole world? You had power over the whole world. What profit would it be if you had it in your hand but lost your soul? Because you might be able to have riches, but you might not also be able to have rest with it. And he uses by means of the most painful analogy I can think of to illustrate that ultimately God's goal for your life is, may not be riches, but it ultimately is rest. It says even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, not find contentment and enjoyment, then in the end, don't they go to the end, same place? Don't our bodies all start to decompose? Aren't we all food for the worms? The second thing I think we see here, if maybe that's not the case, if it isn't the case that maybe wealth and and, and work are against contentment and satisfaction, then what we do at least see is that riches and long life might be I think, according to this hyperbole, this analogy, an enemy to actual rest. An enemy to actually finding joy and contentment in life. So now that we couldn't sink any lower, now that we are more restless, now that maybe we are more hungry, I want to encourage you. I want to land this plane into the New Testament. Because thank God in Christ, we have perfect satisfaction and now we have perfect rest. I want to begin in John chapter 6. You don't have to follow me there, but I encourage you to read it at some point. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. So now we're talking about being hungry and filled, right? Now we're talking about the theme of hunger, the satisfaction. Remember, a person can try all that he wants. Did you hear what he said? The equalizer is, is hunger. In the end, you work to feed yourself. Whether you made a million dollars today and you're going to go to, I don't know, you know, carnival, you know, congratulations, you Brazilian carnivore, have a great day. Or whether you made no money today, and if you're lucky, you're going to get some, some Taco John's Taco Bell that will satisfy you before you go to bed, okay? Good, good for you. You both did the same thing. Ultimately, the equalizer is that you worked really hard for, for ultimately the same thing that you need to live. You don't graduate from this. And it's an equalizer. And so there's this picture of hunger. And in 5,000 people, Jesus miraculously feeds. On the next day, the crowd, in verse 22, they remain on the other side. Jesus showed up. And again, they're like, how'd you get here? Verse 25. When they found them on the other side, they said, Rabbi, how'd you get here? And he's like, kind of implied, well, I, I kind of walk on water. It's my thing. And he says, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me because you saw signs. Or excuse me, you're seeking me not because you just saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but instead work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. And they asked, they said, well, what what is this? How do we get this? How do we do 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 this thing? And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And they said to him, then what sign will you do? How will you prove to me? And I know right now you're thinking, how are you going to prove to me that Jesus can actually satisfy? I want to use his words. They said, what sign are you going to give? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And I love their response. They said, sir, give us this bread all the time. Give us this bread always. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. I say to you, if you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. But all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven. Did you hear that language? I Remember, you thought, you thought manna fell from heaven? I'm the one who came from heaven. It was the Father who sent me, and I do not do my own will, but I do His will. And this is the will that everyone who looks to me and believes should have eternal life. For I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they get angry because they say, how can a person say that? How can a person say that he satisfies? And then there's one more. Gonna, if you want to return with me to Hebrews chapter 4, at the very end of chapter 3. So we have these two, two tensions that Ecclesiastes invites us to think about. Hunger and rest. And apart from God, apparently we can't have a solution. So this theme is picked up in Hebrews chapter 3. He's preaching again out of the Old Testament. He says, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses. Again, this is remember, same theme Jesus talked about. They were wandering in the wilderness and food fell out of the sky and it sustained them through the wilderness, through their wandering caused by sin. And wasn't it them that that provoked Him for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom did He swear that they would not, because of their sin, enter into His rest? but to those who were disobedient. And so we see that they were unable to enter into that rest. Why? Because of their unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news has come to us just as to them. Did you catch that? And he quotes the Old Testament, he says, As I swore, even in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although this this oath was against them, we come to find out, according to verse 6, therefore it remains for us then to enter into this rest. And those who formerly received this good news, they failed to enter because they didn't believe, they disobeyed. And he again, even today, for those of you who may doubt, says that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts and enter into this rest. For as Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, for you and me, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I have good news. That while it might hurt to find out that there is nothing you can accomplish in this life that will satisfy the hunger and thirst that is unquenchable inside of you, and while it may unsettle you to find that you might not have actual rest that comes with the success you might achieve in this life. I have good news. God has freely and openly given and offered the rest and the satisfaction that our hearts crave above all in Jesus Christ. Do you resonate with Solomon? Have you ever done something that seemed like a waste of time? Friend, there's good news. God offers satisfaction in Christ if we would but look to him and trust that his work is greater than ours, he will grant us a joy that lasts forever. Have you ever felt restless? Have you ever felt like you just maybe can't sleep or maybe you can't tone it down, you can't bring your stress level or anxiety level down? I have good news. By the gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ, we are invited to enter into his rest. Did you catch Jesus' words? There's no one he'll cast out. There's good news for you and for me that those of us that find ourselves restless, maybe a little bit cynical, maybe a little bit jaded, maybe a lot depressed, maybe a lot disappointed like like the author of Ecclesiastes, there's good news for us that rest is waiting from a generous and loving God who freely grants it to us in Jesus Christ so that all who look to him for rest and for satisfaction, for contentment, he receives and he does not cast out. Let's pray. God, this is a hard word. It is not in our nature to think all that deeply about the things that lead us to sadness and despair. Uh, So I thank you for those in this room that you have uh, called to to this temporary despair and they've heeded that call. I thank you for the courage that they show to consider even their own sense of hurt or disappointment. And I ask that above all, the despair and disappointment that we bring, we, we, you would begin to affirm in us this promise that you will not cast us out, but instead you are waiting to heap joy upon joy for those of us in Christ. There's some in this room that maybe have not experienced that kind of joy that comes in trusting in Christ. They have. There's some in this room that haven't found that rest that comes from knowing that God's got this for us in Jesus. Would you begin to open their eyes? Would you begin to... Allow them to consider the possibility that to believe this truth, to even consider that this might be truth, is the beginning of joy, is the beginning of lasting contentment, is the beginning of eternal satisfaction. Uh, for those of us maybe in this room, we're working really hard to get to like a financial comfort level. Uh, would you begin to at least give us a sense of wisdom about it? Uh, would you give us a sense of, of understanding? Uh, let us learn from solomon's mistakes as we make the next few steps let us not make these uh, these achievements the wealth the comfort and the satisfaction we tend to find in that uh, let us not allow those things to become idols and take over for some in this room maybe maybe they're they're not seeking that that comfort that comes from this but they're protecting that comfort and they're holding on to that with their all with all their lives would you begin in both of us to begin to maybe pry our grips loose would you begin to show us that you ultimately have eternal wealth and the things that we might may or may not have just kind of, and they're just meant to be gifts that allow us to enjoy life and enjoy the good pleasure that comes beyond the sun. God, we love you and we thank you for this. Uh, we thank you for the good news that as hungry and as thirsty as we are, there is satisfaction in the name of Jesus. As lost and as restless as we are, there is comfort, there is An invitation today of a loving God who opens His arms and wraps them around any who seek rest and satisfaction in Jesus. And we thank You that this is true for us. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.